Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking to Hannah Blank, who is an activist, historian, and author, um, who I first ran across um, with her book, Virgin, The Untouched History. But we're not talking about Virgin today, although she does bring it up a little bit at the beginning of our discussion. The reason why we got in touch with Hannah Blank is because she recently published a new book called Straight, The Surprisingly Brief History of Heterosexuality. And uh, when we talked to her a little while ago, she we got through all the questions and she said, man... You know what? I, I'm so glad that you did not ask me the question that so many other interviewers have been asking me about the book, which is, well, how, how do you talk about a history of heterosexuality since hasn't this just always been? And the answer is no. That is not, in fact, the case because the term heterosexuality, as Hannah, well, Hannah, not Hannah, Hannah, will talk about in more detail, has only been around since 1868. Exactly. And it. she talks a little bit about the evolution of the term, how it started out. It, it was really invented. I mean, it was really invented. Uh, homosexuality and heterosexuality, those terms, uh, were coined in order to talk about these things from a legal standpoint. Yeah, it wasn't even, it didn't even start out as a scientific or a medical term, but actually a legal one. Um, so just to kick things off, we don't, we don't want to talk too much about, uh, what Hannah had to say about straight because she was such a fantastic interview and she has so much great information to share with us. I think that we should go ahead and just jump right into things. Indeed. Indeed. So to kick things off, um, we just wanted to ask her what inspired her to study and write this history of heterosexuality. And it turns out that there were academic reasons behind it, which makes sense because she is a historian. But she also has a compelling personal story behind this as well that she weaves into the book. So, uh, so let's hear from Hannah Blank. Well, there were two things, really, that um, got me going on this project. One was that when I was working on my book on the history of virginity, I kept coming up against the the fact that the only kind of virginity that ever seemed to matter was women's virginity, and specifically as it applied to whether or not they had been penetrated by men. And I was looking at this issue, and it kept coming up over and over and over again across this very long history, because the history of virginity, and it was basically as old as we have history for. And I kept thinking, God, that's such a such a heterosexual way to think about it. And then I thought, then I paused, and I thought to myself, but as a historian, can I really say that? Is that actually accurate? So, like, for instance, are... You know, we're the authors of Deuteronomy. Um, you know, Deuteronomy 23 has quite a bit about virginity and lost, how virginity gets lost and how you tell whether it's real or not and all these things. So, you know, I had to ask myself as a historian, this, the question was, okay, but, you know, were the people writing Deuteronomy thinking of this as heterosexual? 
is that was that even an operating idea in their in their world? And so that got me looking at this question of going, okay, so what is heterosexual? Where does that come from? How long have we have been using this concept, et cetera, et cetera? And the other thing that got me um, interested in working on heterosexuality is my own relationship over the past 15 years has been with somebody who is genetically intersexed. Um, whose sex chromosomes are not XX, which is uh, this typical female um, sequence, or XY, which is the typical male sequence. Instead, my my partner's chromosomes are XXY. So there's there's this third chromosome in there, and when you have XXY, how do you know? You know, do you, is this an XY person with an extra X, or is this an XX person with an extra Y? You know, you don't know. And and medical science doesn't know either. And so when you have this person who is, you know, in a very real, physical, genetic way, not male and not female, what does that do to sexual orientation? Mm-hmm. And that became a, a question that I wanted to try to, to puzzle out. Next, Hannah Blank talks a little bit more about the origin of heterosexuality and the term itself and talks about how it's something that we might take for granted just because we kind of think that this word, this concept, this aspect of our lives has always existed in the same way that we think about it today. It didn't start out in medicine. It started out as a as a legal term, as a term that was sort of invented as a, a way to describe a phenomenon that no one knew how to describe. Um, Karl Maria Kertény, who is an Austro-Hungarian journalist, was part of a group of people who were protesting a, a Prussian sodomy law, German sodomy law. And in the course of his writing about that law, he coined the terms heterosexual and homosexual on the very same day in the very same letter. And his reasons for doing that was that he wanted a way to describe human beings as being sexual. Human beings are sexual beings, and these are these two different ways that human beings can be sexual. Sort of, you know, the the, the thing that I've been saying um, as I've been talking about this book is it's a little bit like saying, you know, there are couch pillows and there are bed pillows, but they're both pillows. There's not an implied hierarchy. One kind of pillow is not better than the other kind of pillow. They're just different kinds of pillows. And that was the kind of kind of implication that Carpeni was trying for, that there's not one kind of sexuality that is better. They're just different. And so that was where that started, and it started in this, this totally non-medical, non-scientific realm. So as Hannah talks about in the book, one of the the most significant transitions of, of this term heterosexual and the term homosexual happens when it escapes from law to medicine, specifically into psychiatry. And with that, the meaning and the baggage attached to heterosexuality changes from being just this sort of explanatory term to being something that's more problematized. It establishes the heterosexual as the normative standard and then by default homosexual as problematic and abnormal and as we take that term um, to self-label ourselves as checking one box or another box if we're speaking just um, strictly in terms of the gender binary then uh, then homosexual becomes non-normative and therefore deviant when it got adopted and the way it came to us 
um, was through medicine. It was specifically through psychiatry. And psychiatry at the time had a big investment, as it still does today, in helping to deal with various types of socially problematic um, behaviors, among them sexual behaviors. And Richard von Kraft Ebing um, was the psychiatrist who was the author of Psychopathia Sexualis, was the first to sort of pick up this word, heterosexual, and use it in a, in a professional context in his field. And again, it was, a, it was also a legal context. He was writing Psychopathia Sexualis as a sort of yellow pages of disorders of sexuality that could be used by people who had to make legal decisions. So he, and he does, he never defines heterosexual. He never says, you know, and this is what a heterosexual is. This is what they look like. This is what their bodies are shaped like. None of that. He uses heterosexual as the thing against which everything else gets defined. It's the backdrop. It's, and then there's these heterosexuals, which are not problematic and they're not pathological and they're not out there causing problems. So it gets defined by omission. It's a very circular way um, of doing it as being normal. You know, this is the normative thing against which we are judging all of these other problematic cases. And it, it spends a while, you know, the term spent a while, you know, well into the 20th century, early 20th century, sort of being batted around in the medical context in various different ways. And you find um, early on, some American writers using it to mean bisexual, uh, what we would now say was bisexual, because they took that Greek root, that hetero, which means different, and assumed, okay, well, hetero, if, if somebody's attracted to different sexes, that must mean they're attracted to both males and females. So therefore, we can use this word, we're going to use it literally to mean somebody who's attracted to different sexes. Um, and that that was one of the definitions that batted around for a while. And eventually the sort of the normal sexual um, definition took hold. It was partly about Havelock Ellis and partly about Freud. And it gradually filtered into our common language. And as it filters into the common language, I think, is where the the most significant change happens when people start using it to refer to themselves and their own lives and their own relationships, then they are no longer just referring to sex or sexual desire, but they're referring to a whole constellation of associated ideas about under what circumstances should men and women be having sex with one another, under what sorts of emotional um, circumstances is it okay for women and men to feel desire for one another what kinds of desire is it okay for them to feel how should women and men organize their relationships what should their economic relationships to one another be all of that stuff that gets folded into how we build families how we build households how people pair bond and take responsibility towards one another in different ways as people start to use the word to talk about themselves, all of that starts to get folded into what we mean when we say heterosexual, and that's why it's so hard to define. So speaking about this this deviant behavior, things that deviate from the norm, there's definitely a drive to, well, Hannah talks about this drive to define yourself as one way or the other, and when you define yourself 
as heterosexual, you were defining yourself as normal and you have certain boundaries to what that behavior entails. And so she goes into how this makes the closet, this whole drive to be one thing or another makes the closet a very real place. We're talking about the the impulse to self-define as normal and unexceptional and to therefore self-define as being worthy of being taken seriously and worthy of being protected and worthy of not being harassed and all of that stuff. And, you know, there's a reason that the closet exists. There's a reason people closet themselves. This is real stuff. The stakes are high. Um, They're not as high as they used to be, at least not everywhere. But the stakes can be real, real high for being seen as a deviant and also for seeing yourself as a deviant. Because when you're aware of what happens to sexual deviance in your culture, that's not something you want to see in yourself. That's something that you want to protect yourself from in you know as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the places where heterosexual starts getting used. And as you say, I write that I write about that in the book, that this is a term that when people start using it to talk about themselves, they're using it to establish their normalcy. They're using it to say, I am not all of these other things that cause problems and that deserve punishment. And so a lot of this this evolution of heterosexuality and homosexuality as these, as these two conflicting terms is all about this social idea of of normalcy and what is normative and what is not. And with that in mind, one of the most compelling themes in the book is how the history of heterosexuality parallels the history of middle class development, which when you think about the middle class ideal of, you know, the husband, the wife, the 2.5 kids, a dog and a white picket fence, it's all about a Maintaining and maintaining these normative standards of success and what that looks like. And, uh, and I thought that was so fascinating. And we wanted to ask her why that intersection of middle class and heterosexuality exists. I mean, it's about the fact that the people who have the most economic and social power in a society get to define what normal is for that society. And the idea of heterosexual grew up at the very same time as the middle classes rose to a position of social and economic dominance. Um, You know, the 1860s, when the word heterosexual was coined, are right smack in the middle of a period where all over Europe and in North America as well, you find that um, cultures, societies everywhere are going through these growing pains to define themselves as civil societies with civil, um, civil laws and civil rulerships and civil governance on a bunch of different levels. A lot of the, the sort of the apparatus of a civil society comes from that period of time government bureaucracies that are designed to help regulate the way we lead our lives, metropolitan police forces. That's a big one that arises up in that last last quarter to a third of the 19th century, the idea that a, a city has an obligation to protect the safety of its citizens. 
And that is coming up not because somebody is just suddenly very enlightened and saying, oh, people deserve to be protected. It's because suddenly you have this growing middle class with a lot of money and a lot of clout who are saying, hey, we aren't aristocrats. We cannot lobby. We can't form an army. We can't have, you know, our own private guard or our own private militia, and yet we need to be kept safe. How does that work? How do we make that happen? Well, how you make that happen is you make a civil police force. That's that's an emblem of the middle class right there. Mm -hmm. And so as the middle classes are growing and they are becoming that powerful and they're able to mobilize that kind of force in government socially, economically, most of most of the economy is moving out of the hands of the old um the old aristocratic regime and into a mercantile and industrial regime that's run by largely by middle class people. Um so the the people who have the money, the people who have the clout, the people who have the power are also the people who get to call the shots in terms of what is considered appropriate and what is considered normative in terms of how you lead the rest of your life. So as far as people in power go, these are the people who are in a position to define what is normal and what is accepted in society. And they're, with the rise of marriage being a, a civil institution, not a religious one anymore in the modern era, um, all of a sudden, you know, our, our civil governments are tracking who's getting married, who's owning property, and there were a lot of rights tied in to marriage. But the laws have become more gender-blind, but there's still the issue of, are they sexual orientation blind? And she talks about that. Well, that's a really good question. And that is, in fact, part of what the whole you know, same-sex marriage controversy is about. Mm-hmm. Um, is, you know, is, is, you know, basically that whole 14th Amendment issue. Uh, do we, are we genuinely going to have equal representation for all citizens under the law? Are we going to go back to the principles of de Condorcet and the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, which is a large part of what, you know, the, um, the goals of the American Revolutionary founders are based on? Are we going to go back to that and talk about this, uh, you know, com- complete egalitarian enfranchisement of all citizens? Or do we, in fact, have, for whatever reason, a de facto sort of hierarchy of citizenship mm-hmm. that we use and that's real and valid and that we're going to uphold. Marriage is a is a civil instrument. It's a civil legal instrument. And um, governments have not always been invested in regulating marriage. It used to be that that was a, it was a religious thing entirely. And it was governed by religious law. And it was not really until the 18th century that that civil governments began to invest themselves in the regulation of marriage. Um, and again, this links into the, the rise of the middle classes. It starts to happen in the mid-18th century. It really hits its its stride in the 19th century as, you know, again, as the middle classes are on the rise and you've got all of these people with all of this money and all of this power in the middle classes, and the state has a really serious interest in knowing who's marrying whom and having some sort of um, some sort of ability to control that 
and and decide who's allowed to get married and who's not allowed to get married and how does property get handled in a marriage and all of those things. And what we're seeing really is, in my opinion, um, you're seeing a lot of people who have had this sort of state involvement in their personal lives and in their relationships for, you know, several hundred years now, um, thinking, you know what, we don't actually need the state to be involved. And at the same time, there are a lot of people who have not had the option of being recognized in that official way. And it is very, you know, very official, very formal to have the state recognize your relationship, certainly. Um, a lot of people who haven't had that option are saying, hey, look, we we demand to be recognized too. We're standing over here. We're citizens. Why don't you want to regulate our lives? Why don't you want to acknowledge our lives? Why our relationships? Why is our property? Why are our children not important enough to you? Mm-hmm. And so they're really um, they're two very different experiences of interacting with the state and being interacted with as citizens. And and it does kind of boil down to a citizenship issue. Who has full access to the state? Who has full access to the government that they have to live under? Now, I talked a lot about the social and legal ramifications of the concepts and the constructs of heterosexuality and homosexuality. But there's also this scientific side of it that she talks about in the book. There is this this quest to find some biological difference between Kinsey's sheep and goats? What, you know, is there some kind of genetic turnkey, something? And, and I wanted to find out from Hannah why, why we are so hell bent to, to keep putting sexual orientation under the microscope. Why we need to, as a society, somehow need scientific proof, maybe as some kind of security blanket to explain non-normative behavior rather than just accepting it as part of the social fabric, or the cultural fabric. The fact that, um, human sexuality might be more fluid than just, uh, two boxes that you could check. I think one of the big issues here is that we have this notion that if something is provably biological, then it is something over which human beings have no control. Um, Now, let's leave aside the fact that there are a whole lot of biological things that can happen to bodies over which we do, in fact, have plenty of control. Contraception comes to mind. Um, But... There is this idea that if something, if it is a matter of nature, if it is a fact of your biology and you did nothing to cause it, then you are not at fault and cannot be punished for it. And that is the driving force behind a lot of the biological research into sexual orientation is this idea that if we can prove that sexual orientation has a biological origin, that it is biologically innate to human beings, cannot be changed, cannot be induced one way or the other, then there's an argument to be made that, well, these, this is just the way people are, they can't do anything about it, they did nothing to cause it, and therefore they should be not be treated any worse for it because clearly it's not their fault. So that is the underlying 
sort of thinking that goes on behind a lot of that. Um, and that is arguably, it's another legacy of the whole period out of which the terms heterosexual and homosexual arise. One of the other people protesting the same German sodomy law was Karl Ulrichs, who was a, a German um, he was a, a jurist. He worked in the law, and he formulated what turned out to be a really influential idea, which was this idea of inversion theory, which was basically that gay men were gay because they weren't really men. They were men on the outside. Their bodies were male, but their minds were female. And because they had this female mind, that was why they desired other men. And a great deal of what's been done in terms of biomedical research on on sexual orientation has basically been to look for ways in which homosexuals are not really either either male or female that they are you know one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside and that's where that comes from and again Ulrich's argument was basically well if this is innate if they're born this way then there's nothing to punish there's nothing that can be punished and there's no point in punishing so there's this deep faith, I think, that um, deep and inexplicable faith in a lot of ways, that this must be an innate issue, that this must be biological, um, because we don't experience it. We don't tend to experience it as a matter of volition. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I find that really unimaginative since there are lots of things that we do that we don't have to intend to do that are clearly also not biological. I mean, most of us who drive cars regularly, we don't think about everything we do when we drive a car. We've learned to do it really without without much volition. You can avoid an accident without really meaning to avoid an accident. You can do it by reflex. Um, so there, there's a lot of gray area there, and it gets very complex. And, of course, people are very uncomfortable with the idea that, that sexuality might be that complex, but it might be, there might be so many layers involved. They want a simple, clear answer to why we do things this way. Why are some people this way, and why are other people a different way? And, you know, I... I, I cite in the book as a, a scientist who says that basically, um, you know, we believe that we can we can divide people into these two groups, into heterosexuals and homosexuals, based on the fact that we have this belief that human beings come in these two varieties. And in a very real way, that's what it boils down to: is that we have we've adopted this belief, we have a, a social use for this belief. And by golly, we are we are bound and determined to find something that can prove that. So, as we pointed out, the terms heterosexual and homosexual have only been around since the 1860s. So we wanted to ask Hannah if she thought that we could live in a post-sexual orientation society. Well, we, we certainly lived in a pre-sexual orientation society. I see no reason why we can't, you know, have a post sexual orientation society it's very it's very difficult to imagine what that would look like um because we're just we're all so steeped in it mm-hmm. but um but as a historian yeah i think why why shouldn't that be possible 
there's nothing to keep us from doing it. What's really remarkable about the idea of heterosexuality is that it, it took such a short time, comparatively speaking. I mean, from 1868, when the word is coined, to 1923, when it appears in the first you know, English-language dictionary um, that's not a medical dictionary, that's a really short period of time for a concept like that to take hold, which is one of the reasons why I find that history so fascinating. Um, and as I argue in the book, the reason it took hold was because it, it came to be at a time when it was really useful and it could do a lot of work for a society that was in a process, you know, this process of enormous social change. And there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that, that would limit that from happening again. So as you've probably gathered from this interview, um, and we didn't even touch on nearly like even close to everything that she, that she covers in the book. Um, but it's, it's so clear just from this brief conversation with Hannah that the definition of heterosexuality is so vast and so broad. And when we talk about sexual orientation, we're talking about so many other larger things that really at the end of the day, it seems like orientation is, you know, it's, it's almost an insignificant label when you consider the, the history and the culture and the scientific quest that surrounded it. So, um, we wanted to find out, uh, that whether or not the process of learning about this history of heterosexuality and writing the book has changed Hannah's definition of heterosexuality what what is straight in in her mind now one of the things that happened to me when i was studying this as a history was i discovered just how much can be absorbed by that word and just how many kinds of behaviors and how many kinds of relationships and how many kinds of marriages and how many kinds of economic arrangements and how many different kinds of sex people are having and have been having for, you know, a hundred years now and saying that this is heterosexual. And um it's it's a pretty damn broad gamut. I mean I, I in the last chapter of the book I I compare heterosexuality to the Borg from Star Trek, you know, this sort of huge, you know, traveling juggernaut that just sort of assimilates things as it goes. And I don't, you know, and that's actually not so far off. There are there are some limits to what heterosexuality has been able to assimilate, but it's been able to assimilate an awful lot. What I what I've found is that my my way of relating to heterosexuality has changed. My way of relating to the idea has changed, in that I I no longer consider it. A, a definition of anything in particular. I think of it more as a sort of a, a guide to probability. I think when somebody tells me, oh, I'm heterosexual, I think, okay, well, that gives me sort of better than 50-50 odds that I know a handful of things about what you might do be and desire. But it certainly doesn't give me anything for free. So after all of this, everything that Ms. Blank has touched on, we wanted to ask her for any final takeaways. Basically, you know, is there anything that she wanted to drive home? And she, she talks about the flexibility of people's perception of what is normal and how we are always sort of incorporating new things into our definition of normal, into our definition of uh, just, you know, heterosexual, homosexual that there seems to be more blurring, and that's fine. 
Yeah. And basically what we, what makes people feel good can be the new normal. You know, I think that the big takeaway for me, um, having written the book, is that there's a lot more out there than you think. And that if you, basically, if you feel like you're you're really sure that you know what this is, I can guarantee you that you're wrong. And that that's actually a good thing. That's actually a really, really good thing. Because what it means is that, you know, human, there's a lot more. Human beings are capable of a lot more. We do a lot more. We're a lot more expensive than we often want to give ourselves credit for being. And some people find that really threatening. Um, but I, I tend to find it really liberating. I really like the fact that we push those boundaries, that we, we go places that we're not supposed to go, and then we find ways to incorporate them back into our normal. Um, that's a really human characteristic, and it's a really interesting one, and it really it bears watching. It bears a lot of watching. So huge thanks to Hannah Blank for talking to us about her new book, Straight, A Brief History of Heterosexuality. Um, she was such an insightful interview. She had so much knowledge to share with us, not all of which could even fit on this podcast. So I encourage everyone out there to, to go out, uh, check out Straight. It is, um, I mean, it's a history of, yes, sexual orientation and also the middle class, also marriage. It all ties together, um, in a, in such a well done book. So, um, thumbs up. To that. Now, the first email that I have is from Stephen, and this is in response to our episode on whether airbrushing damages body image. And Stephen points out that he is a professional photographer, very experienced, and he has been using Photoshop since uh, its first release in 1989. Wow. And uh, is also a, uh, a teacher of Photoshop and photo editing. And he says that one subject that is not taught in our three graphic design degree programs is ethics. I'm on the curriculum advisory board, which works with all of our neighboring colleges and tech schools to make sure credits from our programs will transfer to and from these other programs. Because of this, I'm fairly familiar with their curriculums as well. None cover ethics. While a few professional design societies do have statement of ethics for their members, none is widely accepted and much less are followed. Due to the ease with which photos can be manipulated using free or nearly free software, I can't see this issue being settled anytime soon. Unless you see or hear something directly, you must assume that it has been edited. Airbrushing is everywhere, Caroline. <laughs> Everywhere. I, I, I might even be airbrushed now. I have no idea. You do look quite blemish-free. <gasps> Thank you. Um, this is from Amy about our boxing episode. She says, I'm a female who will be 44 next month. I've been training with a personal trainer for almost a year and got seriously bored. I've never liked working out anyway, so when he suggested boxing, I laughed but was up for anything to break up the monotony. Two months later, I have fallen in love with it so much that I had my husband hang a heavy bag in an extra room so I can get my cardio in on days I don't go to the gym. I've never felt weird as far as gender goes, although sparring with my trainer for exercise is as far as I can see myself going, especially at my age. I was always told to find something I'd like doing, but never thought it would be boxing. Just goes to show that it is good to try something before discounting it. 
Which is true, Amy. Thank you for your letter. I have also tried sparring with a trainer at the gym once, and it was awesome, and I can tell how it would really get you in shape immediately, because I almost passed out. (laughs) He had me doing so many fast repetitions of things for such a long stretch of time. I was like, really? I'm I'm the color of a tomato right now. Maybe I should sit down. But yes, it is an excellent workout. So thank you for your letter. (laughs) And thanks to everyone who's written in. And if you have any thoughts... To share with us about the interview, Hannah Blank, heterosexuality, homosexuality. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send them. And you can also let us know what you're thinking on Facebook and on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. And of course, you can always check out our articles during the week. You can find them at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you